Welcome to the Learning Together podcast series. I'm Nathan Cohn, class of 1995. Today, a conversation with David Imhoff, class of 92, discussing his recent book, So, About Modern Europe. He's a professor of history at Susquehanna University in Pennsylvania. This is what Professor Imhoff tells people about his book. It's definitely not a traditional textbook, and it really is aimed at students and others who don't like history. I use humor, music, popular culture, and other means to try to demonstrate how important the big ideas of the Enlightenment continue to be to us today. It's also a pretty funny story about how the book came about. In this podcast, you'll hear Trinity University's Associate Professor of History, Jason Johnson's interview with Professor Imhoff on the book. This is the Trinity University Learning Together podcast series. Each month, this podcast features faculty, alumni, and other distinguished guests who've established themselves as experts in their fields. It's all part of the university's lifelong learning initiative designed especially for alumni. David, it's such a, a pleasure to be able to talk with you today. Um, I was so excited to get my hands on your on your new book, um, so about modern Europe. I was wondering, overall, what's the aim of this book? Well, it is a textbook for, uh, I guess, for classes on modern European history, but I think it also might have some appeal for people who were just generally interested in history. But really, it was a textbook that was trying to be a kind of anti-textbook. Um, I mean, I've taught with a lot of different textbooks, and I hope there's not other textbook writers listening because I might be stepping on their toes here. Um, but a lot of times textbooks are sort of long and boring and have every single thing imaginable in it. And I think a lot of times students end up getting overwhelmed with that. And I wanted to have a textbook that was a little bit more focused, maybe a little bit less serious, a little shorter, right? That's a big plus, I think. Um, so that was my aim is to, is to create something that was a little bit more focused on, on certain ideas and was not quite as you know, everything plus the kitchen sink. Um, you, you bring up early on in the book, um, your, your classroom teaching presence. And I, I'm going to, I'm going to quote you here. You say, um, quote, if you saw me teach in the classroom, you'd watch me jump up and down, be sarcastic, use bad accents and make history dad jokes. How does, how does your teaching presence, um, inform, inform your writing of this book? Well, I just want all listeners to know that I'm currently jumping up and down right now. He really uh, is. I see him. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually jumping up and down. I like to do the pogo even when I'm speaking like this. I have this ability to keep my voice calm. Um, you know, part of it is, again, I feel like I, my audience is consistently people that are like, oh, my God, do I really have to take a history class? And that is not the easiest audience to to get people excited about. And so I'm always trying to do whatever it takes, you know, dancing, singing, hopping around, you know, trying to imitate Napoleon as much as possible in order to get people to, you know, to, to be excited. And I think that, I mean, I can't say that it always works, um, but I do think that it does show that I care about this stuff and that, and that, Hopefully that can be a little bit infectious. And then ultimately I'm trying also to make people realize this stuff may be hundreds of years old in some cases, but that doesn't mean it's irrelevant. Um, and so I get just as excited about Renaissance choral music as I do about EDM or Elvis Presley. And I, I'm trying to also get my students to make those connections too. So for me, 
that is a part of how I teach, and therefore it was really a part of how I wrote this book. I wanted the book to be to have some of that in it to be a little bit irreverent, a little bit sarcastic. Um, as I said in, in the introduction, I, I take very seriously the idea that it's important to study history, right? I'm enough of an historian and a professor to feel that way, but I try not to take very seriously how I get those points across. We are both professors of, of European history, so we take for granted the importance of, of this topic. Yes. And I think this is, I think this is connected to your argument in, of the book overall. Um, why? Why should people care about modern European history? Because it informs almost everything that we do in the 21st century. And I know that sounds like, you know, typical professor talk of trying to chalk up whatever we do to be of critical importance. But the book is really focused a lot on the ideas of the Enlightenment. So these big ideas that came flying out of the 18th century, um, capitalism, socialism, fascism, feminism, um, and a bunch of other isms, um, but all ideas that I think really sort of still, I mean, we still debate them constantly in our politics today. I mean, if you look at what the 2020 election was about, you can talk about all those big ideas are there. And I'm not saying that that informs everything we do, but I think if you understand some of the big ideas that shape how we live our everyday lives, then you understand better how you can make use of it. You know, one of the things I also say in the book is if you can figure out how all these ideas work and how they often don't work or they work to like create disasters, which they do as well, then maybe you can go out and I'm talking to readers. I'm saying, hey, maybe you can go out there and fix things because um, God knows plenty of things need to be fixed. And I think that, that thinking a little bit about those ideas can help give people an opportunity to figure out what needs to be fixed and maybe how to do it. This is um, the, the liveliest history textbook I myself have ever come across. So congratulations um, in, in meeting your, your goals here. Um, you, you describe, for example, um, Bismarck's unification of Germany in the 19th century. You write, quote, it's very likely that Bismarck twirled his big mustache and laughed laughed maniacally to himself at least two or three times in that process, right? And so you have wonderful anecdotes like this throughout the book. And you take a, a huge a huge and hugely important topic like the Industrial Revolution, and you explain it via M&Ms and potatoes. Could you, could you say a little more about that? Yes, and this is M&M's um, as in the candy, not M&M as in the wrapper. Um, <laughs> Good point. That, that you could do as well, but that would be another story. Um, yeah, the M&M's story is, I, I honestly don't even know where I got this idea, but I, the impetus was like, I think a lot of people today, they think, oh, industrialization was totally awesome because it gave people the ability to use capitalism and make a ton of money. And the reality is that capitalism did eventually allow people to make a ton of money, even workers, but initially it did not. And it was, it, it was pretty tough on workers. And so I get, I have my students think about, and I talk about this in the book as well, that, you know, imagine you're in a, in, in a world in which you have to have a hundred M&Ms in order to have enough property to be able to vote, right? And voting is going to be the way that you're going to change the rules and make sure that you don't have to work 12 hours a day, six days a week, which is what most industrial workers did with no protections whatsoever. So you want rules 
that can maybe minimize some of those uh, grievances and difficulties and make your life a little better. And you got to have 100 M&Ms if you want to be able to vote. And so I say, okay, how are we going to get 100 M&Ms? And I take half the class and I stick them outside in the hallway. So much the better if it's freezing cold out there because we're in Pennsylvania after all. Um, and I, I tell my class, all right, so now uh, I've got two or three people up here with me who are the owners of the factory. And so we can eat all the M&Ms we want because, you know, we own all the property. But you have to make a deal with us to do work to get, we need you to do work and you need the M&M so that you can eventually sustain yourself and be able to vote. And so we'll ask, they'll start, you know, saying, well, you know, what do you need done? Well, we need some papers written or some assignments done. And somebody will say, well, I'll do your, your three papers for 50 M&Ms. And then we'll say, okay, that's great. But is, is anybody willing to do it a little cheaper? And somebody else will say, hey, I'll do it for, for 20. And then somebody else will say, oh, I'll do it for less. And then we get down to these really low numbers. And eventually somebody will get smart and they'll say, hey, but guess what? I'm a writing major. So I'm really good at putting words together. So you could pay me more and I could guarantee you A. Oh, okay. But then we, we kind of eventually get you know, to the fact that, that there's no way any of these people are going to get 100 M&Ms and they're never going to be able to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, so to speak. And only once ever when I've done this have the students gotten super wise and basically unionized. And somebody finally said, wait a minute, why don't we just all agree that we won't work for anything less than this? And then when that happens, I say, OK, get out, get out right out into the hall. And I bring the other half back in and I repeat the exercise. And, you know, then the second time it almost always works. And so the point is that with the M&Ms, I'm trying to get people to realize it's not, it was not easy for people without any kind of specialization to make much money as industrial workers. And so, and the, the potato thing very quickly was just that uh, potatoes were something that British workers saw to be typically Irish. And because they were basically racist against the Irish, they saw that as bad, even though when work, when factory owners fed them potatoes, it actually gave them more calories. But for them, they were being given yucky Irish food. And so they saw that as being an insult. So that's a good example of how industrialization worked. Like it actually did eventually raise people, um, raise people's standard of living, even the people at the bottom. But it took a long time and it really was painful for them, especially in the, in the initial years. These are brilliant and really memorable examples. And the book is, is filled with these kinds of kinds of kinds of useful exercises. It seems, to me at least, very difficult to write a textbook. You're covering centuries, you're covering, covering many countries. What led you to, to want to write a textbook? Oh, nothing. I did not want to write a textbook. If anyone had ever said, hey, Dave, how about writing a textbook, bro? I'd be like, no, 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 thank you. Because I had a certain set of assumptions about what a textbook was. And I didn't think I could do it and I didn't want to do it. But I, I wrote another book on a city that most people in the United States can't pronounce called Göttingen. And my wife read it and she was like, wow, that's a pretty fine book there. But there's a lot of information there and a lot of footnotes and it's kind of confusing. And of course, yeah, it was. I mean, my first book, it was sort of an historian's history. It was kind of one historian to another. Um, and not so much for students or for people who were just kind of vaguely interested. 
in history. And she said, why don't you like, you need to drink more, which is always a good thing to hear from your spouse. You need to sit down and have some wine and basically talk a book that will be a little bit more, you know, like what you do in the classroom. And I mulled that idea over for a while. And eventually I thought maybe it would be good to do a book on, on just on modern Europe. Um, and so I, I, I came up with some ideas and I, and I got an email from, the, from an editor at Bloomsbury Press and I had published something with them before. And he asked me if I was, had anything planned. Um, and I said, yeah. So we met at a conference and, and he said, okay, well, tell me about what you're working on. And I told him about one idea that he was very interested in. I said, but I've got this other really weird thing going. Like I was thinking about doing a kind of popular history book, but very different. He's like, well, what do you mean different? I was like, well, you know, like there might be some cursing in it. There might be jokes in it. Like I might start off, you know, making references to ABBA and Van Halen. And he's like, and he was British. He's like, no, I'd like to work on that. (laughs) I said, oh, good. And so I fleshed out a proposal and sent it to them and was able to draw a lot from what I had done in the classroom, mostly at Susquehanna. And um, and Bloomsbury bit and they said, OK, well, we think this could be a good textbook. And I was like, um, that sounds good. But is this a really a good time to be writing a textbook? You know, like I thought books are like totally 20th century and out of style, man. And he said, well, listen, our business model is that we're going to publish this book in paperback and it's going to be cheaper than most students pay to rent a book. And, you know, for any listeners who aren't aware of it, that's kind of the standard way that most students get books these days, or a lot of their books, is they rent them, rent them for three or four months. And I've got kids in college, and so I know that it's pretty tough to find a book to rent even for less than 40, 50, 60 bucks. For, and that's just for one semester. And my book, and I'm not here being a huckster, I'm just, you know, my book costs like maybe 20 or 30 dollars. And so the idea was, if you give people a less expensive alternative, that would, you know, be less expensive for them, which is good, but also maybe sell a few more books. And so that was the idea. And once I kind of got on their their train, man, it was a fast moving train. Let me tell you, I was like, this is definitely not a traditional university press where they're like, oh, take your time. They were like, okay, can we get the book finished by the end of the year? And I said, well, what, wh- which year? And they said, this year. And I was like, oh, I need a little more time than that. And so it went really, really fast. I, I wrote the entire book or the majority of the book between August of 2019 and February of 2020. And so at one point I was actually writing a chapter per week. Um, so I drank a lot of coffee and got up super early. And, um, but it was kind of fun. It was actually kind of fun, even though it was manic, it was, it was kind of enjoyable. Hello, this is Danny Anderson, president of Trinity University. Thank you for listening to the Learning Together podcast series brought to you by Trinity's Office of Alumni Relations and Development and produced here on campus by our friends at KRTU 91.7 FM. We're so glad you tuned in today, and we appreciate your continued support of lifelong learning at Trinity University. 
Welcome back to the Learning Together podcast from Trinity University. I'm Nathan Cohn. Let's return to the conversation between the author David Imhoff and Dr. Jason Johnson. Um, I'm glad that you brought up music. Um, I, I'm going to quote you here again. You say at the beginning of your of your book here, quote, This book will trace the history of the big ideas of the modern world. Freedom, democracy, human rights, how Sweden produced ABBA. Why is music so, so present in this book? Do you have uh, an interest in music, a background in music? Yes and yes, although I will confess, I hope readers don't go looking in the book for um, the explanation of ABBA because I don't actually do that and I feel kind of bad. I kind of led people astray there. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I play music. I, I, I play in a band and have for a lot of years. Um, and I, I, I've written about music and I, I really love music. And, and actually the music in some ways goes back to a, uh, an experience I had with my in-laws. We were in Salzburg, Austria, in fact, and we were looking at all the different churches there. And God knows there's a lot of churches in Salzburg. And I was trying to explain some of the different architectural styles um, to to my in-laws uh, about, you know, by, by looking at these different churches. And, and I could tell that it just wasn't quite working. And I, my, my mother-in-law is a music teacher. And I said, okay, so listen, look at that big, that big church over there, a big Gothic church. Can you imagine Beethoven being played in there? And she's like, no, no, it'd be crazy. I said, but look over at this smaller church. Could you imagine Vivaldi being played in there? And she's like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. And so it, it, re, it made me realize, I mean, whether you love music or not, it becomes another way of sort of telling the story of change over time. And I try to have in, in the book uh, a lot of different ways I talk about changes. But for me, music is one of the, the most important ones. And I'll, I, I like to use music as a way of in, introducing the topics that I'm talking about. Um, because I think not only does it introduce them in a way that people aren't expecting, but also it, it lets people hear what the time period sounded like. Um, and I think that, you know, like, for example, like people, classical music doesn't seem very loud to most people in the 21st century, but when people heard Beethoven's Third Symphony, which was initially um, dedicated to Napoleon, they came out of there holding their ears. They felt like their ears had literally been abused because it was so loud. And I know people today are like, dude, how can classical music be so loud? But it was super loud because he went from crazy loud to crazy quiet and back and forth. And it just blew people away, literally. And that, in my mind, helps people start to think a little bit about, all right, so so that's a very different perspective on how music works. And so I like to give people an, an ability to hear what things would, how their experience might have been if they lived during these time periods. Absolutely. And fundamentally, historians think about change over time and using music as you do in the textbook overall in that way um, is really, really helpful and interesting. Um, Thank you. You were a Trinity history major. I'm, I'm biased here, but Trinity has a, a fantastic history department. You mentioned um, Margaret Thatcher's visit to Trinity when you were there. Could you say a little more about, about that? Margaret Thatcher appears in the latter part, the latter part of the book. Right, so 
So Thatcher was um, prime minister of Great Britain from 1979 to 1989, something like that. She came to Trinity. Trinity is blessed, blessed, I tell you, with having amazing speakers come and visit. And I remember one year, both Gorbachev and Lech Walesa came in the same year. And I was like, and of course, I'm in Pennsylvania, so I can't go. But so Margaret Thatcher came and she gave a talk. And a couple of things happened at that talk that for me were phenomenal. One was I didn't know at the time that she had been a chemist. I think everybody knows that now because there have been movies made about her. But she actually went into the lab with with um, students and you know did some experiments with them. I was very, very far from a chemistry student, so I was not invited into the lab with Maggie Thatcher. But I did go to her talk, and her talk was basically, you're welcome. And, I, and you know, like, we won the Cold War for you, Ronnie, and I, yes, you're welcome. And I was like, I don't know about that. I think that might be a little bit of a fallacy. And she was basically kind of saying, look, we kept the pressure on the Soviets for 40 years, and eventually they couldn't pay for all those things. They couldn't pay to keep up with Star Wars, the satellite system that was supposed to shoot down nukes. They couldn't pay to keep up with all the nuclear weapons. They couldn't pay to keep up with the space race. And eventually, essentially, all these, these this pressure, this military pressure in particular, helped to bankrupt the Soviet Union. And that's not wrong. Um, we know that, we know that now after the fact, but that's a little bit like, you know, your great grandmother saying, I've lived to be 93 because I smoked three cigarettes every evening. It's like, I don't know if that's the thing that did it for you, great grandma. Uh, I think you just had phenomenal genes and you're kind of looking back in the past and saying, Baha, I have found this thing because it wasn't like, Reagan and Thatcher were sitting around going, oh yeah, let's make sure that we, let, we don't need any more nukes. You know, we can already destroy the world 13 times, let's, but let's give us some more. It'll totally piss off the Russians. This will be awesome. They weren't saying that. And so on the one hand, she was right that the pressure that, um, you know, that the Cold War applied to the Soviet Union was, was essential for its demise, no doubt. But the idea that she could sort of pat herself on the back and pat Ronald Reagan on the back and say, yes, we did this for you and you're so very welcome. Not, 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 not exactly true, but it was, you know, it's, it's, it's a great moment. Again, you know, it's one of those things I think um, Trinity needs to be super proud of that they, they have this awesome tradition of bringing really important people there to come and talk about really important stuff. And I mean, love or hate Margaret Thatcher, you know, the idea that as a college student, you got to see her right after she had been prime minister was just phenomenal. Absolutely. Um, and in my time at Trinity, David Cameron has come. Um, my Some of my yeah. students and myself got to interact with him in a small group setting. Wow. Um, Theresa May came just before the pandemic. And so this, this process continues. And I, I just double-checked myself via your textbook. And Thatcher was prime minister from 79 until 1990. Okay. So we, we have that um, from, from, from your helpful textbook. Writing, writing any sort of book, and I would imagine especially a textbook, is such this, it's an emotional, um, really energy-consuming process. Yeah. Now that your textbook is out in the world, what's your overall goal with it? 
my main goal is to move on Amazon from place 3,476,055 to 3,474,000. It's a very good goal. That's my goal. And um, so if, if one or two of you would buy that book, uh, that would probably accomplish my goal. Um, I mean, the people keep, I've had several people ask me, are you going to assign this for your own classes? And I always say no for two reasons. One, because it feels a little smarmy and weird to, you know, like have my students buy my own book. I know a lot of people do it and it's not a terrible thing, but it feels kind of odd. And secondly, like if I assigned this book, I, what what kind of jokes could I make in class? What would you even say in class? If you what would I even say in class? I'd be like, oh yeah, like on page 37. And like, I'd be like footnoting myself, which would be, which would really make it pretty dull. I mean, I, what I hope that students will take away from this is I hope they'll realize Maybe you know, anybody who reads this this book, I hope they would realize that that big ideas still matter and um, that big ideas have done some wonderful and absolutely horrific things in the world. And it's important for us to recognize both of those. I mean, there's a lot in here about how the, you know, the sort of line I tell my students as well, the, uh, the Enlightenment. Yeah, it gave you human rights and Auschwitz. Right. Because I and I think it's essential to understand those big ideas are not they are neutral in many ways. They can do amazing things. Um, they can solve medical problems. They can help us have greater human rights. They can increase tolerance, expand people's understanding of each other, minimize violence toward each other. We are we live in a less violent society than people in, you know, in the past did, but they can also create um, methods of, of, of destroying the environment, of, of repressing um, individuals. And I hope that people would realize that we need to understand where those big ideas come from and how they continue to affect us today. Because I tell you that you know, the peop there are people who do get it and you can let them bludgeon you with it or you can be a part of the group that basically takes these ideas and goes and does something with it. Um, so, I mean, in, in the end, you know, my, my ideas are, are, are my, my hope for the book are, are pretty highfalutin. They're pretty like, you know, I really think that if people understand how the ideas of the Enlightenment and, and um, in the modern world shape our, our society today, I think that we can make our society better. Um, I think we can improve our society. We can improve the way that we treat each other. We can create systems that will help more people live better, live longer, um, live in, in greater harmony. And I mean, now, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm completely uh, pieced out here, man. And um, so it ends, uh, you know, sort of like hippies where we, we take these ideas and we go out and, and try to save the world. So there you go, Jason. That's that's what I want the book to do is to save the world. Um, <laughs> it's, hard to, it's hard to imagine a, a better a better goal than than the book saving the world. Um, save the world by my book, right? And, and Abba appears, Elvis appears, so many so many musical stars appear, and so um, like I said, this is the just an incredibly lively lively textbook and um, it's been it's been a real a real pleasure to to chat with you about it well it's been great i appreciate that you brought up the the, the margaret thatcher story but i also want to underscore the fact that uh so i teach at a school my school is very similar to trinity and um 
one of the things that has been very satisfying about being here is knowing that I'm still doing the kind of work that professors of mine did, in particular my, my main man, Gary Cates, who was a professor of history for many, many years, um, taught me in, in, you know, a great deal and really set me up to, to kind of find these these ideas and these things be, be you know, powerful, moving, emotional, um, consuming and so forth. And so I really feel like that even though this book was written in the context of Susquehanna University, I feel that Trinity is, is very much a part of the, the experiences that I had there um, as, a, as a college student are very much a part of, of this book. So it's been a real pleasure to be able to make that connection um, between this work and my time at Trinity. And you're an excellent example of a, a Trinity grad going out and making the world a better place and even, as you said, trying to save it. We can all try. Exactly. Thanks for listening to the Learning Together podcast. I'm Nathan Cohn. Today's episode was recorded and produced by Trinity University's KRTU radio station for the Office of Alumni Relations and Development. New podcasts will be released on the last Friday of each month. For more information about our Learning Together podcast series or to suggest a topic for a future episode, please email us at alumnipodcast at trinity.edu.